Well, good morning. You may be seated. How are y'all? Good to hear from the three of you. <laughs> I hope the rest of you are okay. If you're in Christ, you should be, because you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That's something to celebrate. How y'all doing? Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the birth of the New Testament church. We've seen that all the promises that Jesus made to the apostles about sending his Holy Spirit, that people would come to him and start this new community, this messianic community, in the words that we just heard from John Stott, this new Israel, this calling out of a darkness of sin and into the light of the kingdom of God, the dawn of something new. Right now, it's ethnic Jews, men and women, their kids, but it will soon expand to Gentiles as well. We saw that this expansion begins with Peter's sermon that we spent the last two weeks on. In the greatest sermon that was ever told, inspired by the Holy Spirit, translated by the Holy Spirit into all these different kinds of tongues so that everybody could understand that they are sinners, but there is a Savior, that conviction of sin ought to bring us hope towards repentance. The sermon is about death, but for new life. And this sermon led to the conversion of 4,000 men. And I think we can safely assume that 4,000 was not the ceiling for the conversion count, because in antiquity, typically, the only heads that were counted in crowds were those of men. So if those men went home and shared the gospel with their wife and with their kids and people that worked for them, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands, not just merely 4,000 men. All this because Jesus made a promise to the disciples earlier in John chapter 14, if you recall, that when he ascended to heaven after his death, burial, and resurrection, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that is the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. That's precisely what happened. What we're seeing in the birth of the church is proof positive that Jesus, in his ascension to heaven, asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit because that's when it all started happening. And what's neat is that unlike ancient Israel and their relationship with the Holy Spirit, we're actually seeing an expansion, a widening of the relationship of God's people to the Holy Spirit. You gotta think about it. That in, in, in ancient Israel, as we saw in our study of the book of Exodus, the Holy Spirit did indeed dwell with the people. He dwelled with them. He didn't dwell in them. Now, sometimes he would dwell in specific people, like, for example, a prophet. But he never dwelt inside the people of Israel. Have you ever noticed that? Well, now times are changing. That because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only is the Holy Spirit coming to dwell with the church or the new Israel, but the Holy Spirit dwells in every single believer, not just a prophet, not just pastors, not just leaders. Every single believer now has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. This was the promise that Peter experienced himself and then extended to the rest of the crowd in his sermon when he said, repent, be baptized for every, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. 
And as we saw, 4,000 people did. That's a radical change in the history of God's people. So if you're reading this account for the first time and you're familiar with Israel's story, you're probably wondering what comes next. Like how could you possibly top the Holy Spirit coming, not just to dwell with the new Israel, but in the new Israel? Like what could possibly come next? Well, Luke is excited to tell us all of that. We're going to see the story of the Holy Spirit expand throughout Acts. But right now, in this passage this morning, he's going to give us a little snippet. This is kind of like a transition, a hinge on which a door swings this passage. It's one of three spots that he's going to do it in the book of Acts to get our attention to shift from one thing to another. So it's kind of like the camera is panning out for just a second, and then it's going to focus back in. So we're going to see, generally speaking, we're going to see principles, we're going to see practices of the early church, not specific episodes, but kind of an overview of what's happening immediately after Peter's Pentecost sermon. How long did this occur? Where did it occur? Was it just in Jerusalem? We don't know. These are generalities that we're going to to see. But in seeing this general observation of the church, we can glean a lot for what the church period ought to look like. So let's reread our passage today. Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. And they... Men, women, children, all who believed, who repented and were baptized. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were gathered and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, gather. I'm sorry. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as you can see, again, this is very general, and it's very instructive for us. So the first question we have to ask is this: Is this text descriptive of what happened or prescriptive of what should happen. We bring this principle up a lot in the study of Acts because it's going to help us interpret what the Holy Spirit would have for us in these stories. If we're careless, this text can actually become pretty dangerous, as we're going to see later this morning. But we've mentioned it before, it's worth bearing repeating here. The book of Acts is never solely prescriptive, and it is always descriptive. What do I mean? A text is prescriptive when it prescribes, when it commands, when it suggests, like a doctor writes you a prescription. It's prescriptive when a text prescribes some kind of belief or behavior. But a text is descriptive when it merely describes belief or behavior, just reports on what happens. You see the difference? So sometimes in Acts, it's hard to discern between what's being prescribed to us as normative, as what we should do, and what should be emulated, 
It's hard to discern that from what's merely being described as a report of what has happened. We don't necessarily need to do it. It's not necessarily expected of us, but this is what happened in the first century church. Now, this text, uh, among many throughout Acts, I believe is one of the most difficult because if you were to ask me, what do you think? Is this text prescriptive or descriptive? Frustratingly, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> it's a bit of both. Uh, should we be exactly, precisely like the early church and doing every single thing that they do here in this text? Well, no, and this is why none of us can go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore. They gather together at the temple in Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem today, you know the temple's no longer there. So we can't. And for people that are here at the birth of the church, they will see the destruction of the temple. But that's okay. No matter, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19? Where's the temple? Temple, if you're in this room, raise your hand. You are the temple, Paul says. And that's a lesson that the church is going to learn. So in one sense, if we're being really, really nitpicky, no, we can't attend the temple, so it's not exactly prescriptive of what we should say. But is this text describing in principle what the church should be like? That we ought to respond with a resounding yes. There's seven things that you can pull out of this short passage about what a church should be like. A church should be devoted to apostolic teaching, fellowship, and to prayer. A church should be in awe of God's works when he works. A church should ensure that there are no needs within the faith community. A church should gather, not forsaking each other by depriving one another of Christian fellowship. A church should be thankful to God it should desire favor with outsiders, but recognize that that's not what we're here for. And it should celebrate when God adds to our community. Which means that this passage that we're reading this morning is a descriptive model that provides characteristics and principles for what the local church ought to look like. And so for that reason, I think it would be most helpful this morning is if we approach this text from an instructive point of view? What can, what can it instruct us as a church and glean those characteristics and principles and look at ourselves as individuals, community groups, families, and a church? Um, do we echo the early church here? Let's find out. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and of prayers. It's really super interesting to me that the very first thing that Luke points out about the early church is that they were devoted to teaching, they were devoted to fellowship, and they were devoted to prayer. That's interesting to me because the very next thing he talks about is wonders and signs. So you'd think the first thing that Luke would want to get out his pen is there were crazy signs that all of the believers were there watching and they were devoted to teaching, to prayer, to fellowship. Nope. He flips that order that you would expect which suggests to me that the normative life of the church looks something like this. Devotion. Not looking for signs and wonders, but chiefly and primarily devotion. That word devotion in Greek means to be attached to. I love that, because what that means is that Peter is telling us, if you want to see a true church, look for what they're attached to. If you want to see if the Spirit's really working in the life of a local congregation, ask yourself, what are they attaching themselves to? Because the early church attached themselves first to apostolic teaching, which the equivalent for us would be to attach ourselves to the Word of God. 
walking through scripture word by word, whether it's on Sundays like what we're doing right now or in weekdays when we scatter throughout the city or in private by ourselves. Whether it's sermons or studies, we are attached to God's word. We ought to be a learning church. But also, they were attached to fellowship, meaning that they were attached to each other. For that to happen, there's got to be love, there's got to be unity. Whether that's, you know, gathering together frequently on Sundays, whether that's living with one another in friendship and love, in community groups, growing together in holiness, we ought to be a living church attached to one another, attached to teaching, attached to fellowship. And then third, um, he says, actually, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And what does that mean? Should we have a loaf of bread in here in the morning and break it? <laughs> Check off that thing on the checklist? No, not necessarily. Actually, scholars are pretty divided about this. Not the fact that they're like, oh, I disagree that Luke said that we should be a bread-breaking church. The, the disagreement is, well, what does he mean by breaking bread? Does it mean fellowship? having meals together. So actually, it's just an extension of the former point that they were enjoying attaching themselves to fellowship. Or does it mean the Lord's Supper? Because often throughout Scripture, the breaking of bread is symbolic or a nickname for the Eucharistic celebration of Christ's death for our salvation. If that's the case, then what Luke is saying is you need to be attached to what we could call ordinances, church ordinances, like the Lord's Supper or baptism. So what is it? Is it breaking bread as meals or is it breaking bread as Lord's Supper? Let's just call it yes. <laughs> Again. Because of course we should be devoted to each other in breaking, meal, breaking bread together as, as far as meals are concerned. Why? Because in the first century, um, breaking bread as far as fellowship and a meal was a very intimate affair. You didn't invite people over to have food with you that you didn't consider family or that you didn't trust. And so if we are organically or naturally doing that as a community, then the equivalent is we trust each other. We know that we're looking out for each other. We know that there's unity. So yes, of course, we would want to break bread in that sense. But I, I know I cheated and I said it's both meanings. If I had to like pick one, if somebody was like, no, you must pick one of these two choices, I think I'd actually go with the Lord's Supper for this reason. Um, it's a bit redundant to say they were fellowshipping and breaking bread together, but also to break bread in a list, among other things, indicates that there's something special about this. And if it is the Lord's Supper, then that means the early church was frequently celebrating it. We're not told how often, we're, we're only told that they did. But apparently they didn't do it once every year like on Passover. So frequency is not the, the, the point here. The point here is that they were attaching themselves to the symbol. They're attaching their hearts to these ordinances because of what it reminded them of. They're attaching themselves to baptism to remember that they had died in their sins and were raised again to newness of life through faith alone and Christ alone. And they're attaching themselves to the Lord's Supper, a confession that we need the manna bread from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to proclaim his death until he comes again. That's what they're attaching them themselves to, the symbols of the gospel. Thankful acknowledgement for what God has done. And because we do that, 
We are technically a liturgical church. Fancy word, it means the order of service and the things that you do in a Christian service. We're not liturgical in the sense of like vestments and smells and bells and those types of things, but in practicing the ancient and precious ordinances that are meant to remind us that Jesus has blessed us. Fourth, they were devoted to prayer, which means they were attaching themselves to hearing God, and they were attaching themselves to speaking to God through our one mediator, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. Whether that's when they corporately gathered together, whether that's in their groups when they scattered, whether that's in the privacy of your own home, by yourself or with your families, uh, we ought to be a praying church as well. So we have, uh, we have fellow, uh, teaching, fellowship, fellowship slash ordinances, and then prayer. That's what they were attaching themselves to. Here's a good question for us all. If the early church was devoted to these things, if they're attaching themselves to these things, do you feel unattached in any of these areas? Do you feel unattached to God's word? Do you feel unattached to this fellowship of people around you? Do you feel unattached to prayer? Here's a, a, a question for all of us. Are there any of these areas that you feel this local church is unattached? As a corporate body, are we unattached? I'd love if, if you're in a community group to have that discussion this week and see what the Spirit does with it. Because if I'm honest, if I'm being asked this question in, in my community group, and they're like, what do you think uh, the church corporate is a bit unattached from and can attach to more? I would say it's prayer. I would love if we spent more time corporately in prayer. Okay, that's the homework assignment. Let's compare the local church to what the early church was feeling now. So we, we saw Luke was saying, hey, this is what the early church was doing as a result of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to see how the early church was feeling because of God's work. Verse 43, and awe, awe came upon every soul. No one's excluded. Awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostle. So the early church felt awe. It's interesting, the, there's a lot of ways you could translate awe out of Greek into English, but the word here in Greek is phobos, which is where we get our word, uh, the fancy word for fear. Phobia, right? Arachnophobia, agoraphobia, claustrophobia. You've heard of those things before? Maybe some of you have it. If you do, you can raise your hand. If you have a fear of raising your hand, don't. I don't want <laughs> to upset you. Um, most pastors won't tell you, but I'll be frank with you and honest. Uh, in studying for sermon prep, sometimes you go on rabbit trails just because you want to see where the rabbit goes. And I wanted to find the strangest phobia, and I think I found it. It is, this is crazy. Let's see if I can pronounce it right. Hippopotomonstrosis quipedaliophobia. And it is cruelly the fear of long words. <laughs> it is so messed up. And if you have hippopotomonstrosis quipedaliophobia, I am sorry I did not give you a trigger warning. Because <laughs> that's a long word. 
Okay, phobia. You kind of get it, right? When we think of the word phobia, we think of it as a negative uh, uh, emotional reaction, as something that you would avoid. Arachnophobia, you're avoiding spiders. This word, you're avoiding long words, right? Um, not quite exactly what that word is supposed to mean. It's not that they experienced God and were afraid of him, like he was some kind of tyrant that could extinguish them in a moment. What they feared was seeing signs and being in the presence of raw and unbridled being and power and glory, a healthy respect for who God is and what he's doing. That's what they feared. They'd never seen anything like it, these signs and wonders. I mean, sure, some of them, like the disciples, for example, had been following Jesus around for three years, and they saw him do all sorts of miracles. But that's the God-man. Surely people aren't ever going to be able to do those miracles, right? Wrong. The text says that many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and that was freaking them out. It's one thing if God sends his son to do miracles. It's another thing when God's son physically is no longer present, but he's still doing miracles through fishermen. That's the crazy thing that's happening here. Mere mortals doing miracles? You know, next week we're going to learn about the first recorded miracle, as far as a healing is concerned, in the book of Acts, after Jesus ascends, is a lame man peeled by, peeled, a lame man healed by Peter and John. So God really is at work. He's continuing his work through the apostles. In fact, um, Luke earlier used that same word, phobos, in his gospels, in Luke chapter five, to capture what the disciples were feeling as they were watching Jesus do miracles. And amazement seized them all. And they were glorifying God and were filled with awe. That's the same word, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. So they might have thought at some point, like when Jesus goes into heaven, we're gonna stop seeing extraordinary things. And Jesus says, no, you're gonna to continue to see extraordinary things. And that's the thing that's bringing them awe. It's unsurprising to me that in Luke chapter five, the thing that the apostles were in awe about was that Jesus had just healed a lame man. And the very first miracle we're gonna learn about in Acts is that the apostles heal a lame man. But we've already uh, learned here that the, the whole point of wonders and signs is not to impress you. It's to point you to the gospel. It's to grab your attention. It's meant to prepare you to hear the good news. Peter said earlier in his sermon, Acts 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 22, he said these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and the exact same phrase, wonders and miracles that God did through him in your midst. Why? Because he wanted to get your attention. He did them so that people would listen to Jesus, to hear and believe his gospel. And the same is going to continue on throughout the book of Acts. Again, the most miraculous thing that has happened so far is not that tongues of fire sat on the apostles' head and that they spoke in foreign languages they didn't understand. That's not miraculous. What's miraculous is that the people that heard the message through that day repented and believed the gospel. That's what's miraculous. And next week, it's not gonna be miraculous that Peter and John raise a lame man up from his being paralyzed state. What's miraculous is that that man becomes a believer and keeps in step with the Holy Spirit. All wonders and signs 
must point to the gospel. They must. Or else they are ultimately not wonderful. They were just demonstrations of God's power. And they weren't actually signs because a sign always points towards something other than itself. This is the reason why when you're driving to Disney World, you don't see a gaggle of thousands of people pulled off to the side of the highway hanging out under the sign that says, Disney World, next 22 miles. What are you doing? It's the highway outside of Florida. Disney World's just 20 minutes away. Don't fixate on the signs. Let the signs do their job. Point you to the destination, and the destination is always, without fail, in the book of Acts, the proclamation and reception of the gospel. Okay, so what is a learning, living, liturgical, praying church in awe of God's wonders and signs to do? It's a, I think a thousand things that Luke could have reported on, but he was inspired to report on one thing in particular. Remember, this is a 30,000-foot view. This is a generalization that Luke is giving us. There are too many things for him to explain, so he's got to choose one, and by the Spirit, he chooses this one, which is God is using this community to provide. He's using it to provide. Verse 44 through 47, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, well, as any who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. All right, if ever there was a passage capable of being abused in the book of Acts, here it is. All throughout church history, people with very selfish motivations or uh, improper lenses viewing scripture, reading it through like, you know, presuppositions or forcing on the text what they want to see, all throughout church history, they've done some crazy things with this text. Probably the most crazy is here, right here in the United States of America, upstate New York in the early 19th century, there was a group called the Oneida Group. It was a communitarian group. And they interpreted this passage, I'm not kidding, as permission for open marriage. So men were sharing their wives with each other. Why? Well, the believers had all things in common. What? How, how did you get that from this text? For a number of reasons, not which the least is this. They had all things in common. So if you think your wife's a thing, you got another thing coming. All the ladies are like, amen. The other problem is, Acts is literally the story about the progression of Christ's bride and her moving into the world in anticipation of his return. If ever there was a perverse thing to do with this text, it would be to distort the image that marriage gives to the world. Okay, so... Sorry, Onita, try again. You would be shocked to hear that that community fell apart for some reason. In the 20th century, a little closer to to our lifetime, um, unless you're 300 years old, um, the 20th century, this text was a proof text by some Christians for the promotion and advancement of communism. They had all things in common. They were redistributing wealth among people. So they were interpreting this as a model for the state to acquire property and wealth and then redistribute to people. Here's like the most glaring problem with that interpretation. 
The church is not the state, and the state is not the church. Wealthy believers, not unbelievers, wealthy believers were willingly selling their possession so that poor believers, not poor unbelievers, could have no needs. So be real careful with that. This is not some kind of archetype for communism. But it's also not, so maybe those two points you would agree. If you don't agree with me, let's talk. I'd like to have coffee. If you think this is a text for open marriage and communism, we should talk. But one that I think hits a little closer to home is that this text is also pushing against kind of the staunch American individualism that we all live and move and have our being in. I take care of my problems, you take care of your problems, we call it a day. The best kind of neighbors are the ones that don't bother me. Or you've heard this, look, if we alleviate poverty, isn't that just gonna make people lazy? If I give them money, are they just gonna squander it? Why? Because we, we, our starting point is individualism. But look, this passage is not communism, it's not individualism, this passage is Christianity. It's a model for the way the new Jerusalem, the new Israel behaves in the kingdom of Jesus. Let me explain. First, the word possession here is extremely important, and I think it's the key to unlocking the meaning behind this text. Notice that Luke says they were selling their possessions and belongings. Aren't they the same thing? If you possess something, doesn't it belong to you? No. Uh, those aren't the same things. We're not talking about synonyms here. A belonging is something that you worked for to gain. It's food, clothes, tools, animals. But a possession is something that was inherited by you. A possession is something that was given to you. So a belonging is something you worked for and, received, and, and gained. You, you owed it. It was your wages. I earned that. Give it to me. And a possession is something that you didn't work for. It was given to you. Your father on his deathbed said, here is your inheritance, this plot or this possession of land. You see where Luke's going with this? How radical is it that first century Jews were selling their land possessions? What was one of the primary reasons that God called Israel out of Egypt? Before he even sent Moses in, Exodus chapter six, he makes this promise to Israel. I'll bring you into the land. I'll bring Israel into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'll give it to you for a, what's that word? Possession. I'm the Lord. In other words, that's his signature. It's gonna happen. Wait, I thought Israel was supposed to leave Egypt to get the possession of the land and keep it forever because God promised Abraham and Isaac to Jacob that. And then now I'm saying that they're selling those possessions? What's going on here? The kingdom of God is expanding. That's what's going on here. They know that the kingdom of God is now bigger than Israel. It's not less than Israel. The entire church at this point is Jewish. But it's becoming so much more than Israel, as we've already seen a preview of in all nations' languages being represented at the day of Pentecost in Peter's sermon. Kingdom of God is expanding, we see, and they get it. I don't need the land anymore. There's no end to the boundaries of this kingdom. And so if I don't need the land anymore, I can sell it 
so that I can offer a sacrifice to satisfy the needs that are in this expanding kingdom. Because God's a good king. He's not going to let his people go without need or go with need. And so in his territory, people are taken care of. Verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they were not selling possessions for no reason. The reason was this. In a humble and gracious attitude, they recognized that they were participating in an exchange. That God gave them what wasn't theirs, but what they needed. In other words, the promised land of Israel. And now they're giving away what was given to them to any who had need. Because of the great exchange on the cross, they're now participating in this exchange, in this new Jesus culture. This is what a cheerful giver looks like in the kingdom of God. God freely gave what you needed. Their possessions weren't their own. God gave it to them. Their belongings weren't their own, really. Not really. I mean, uh, Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. It's everything. So for them, it was their food, clothes, tools, animals. God gave that to them. It, it belongs to him. They might have earned it, but it's not theirs. It's his. And so for us, it's our food, it's our clothing, it's our homes, it's our bank account, every single cent, dollar, stock, car, toy, whatever. It's not yours. It belongs to God. We're stewards of it, and he gifts us those things temporarily. So here, I think, is a simple exhortation for all of us. If you have, give, because it's not yours in the first place. And if you have not, ask, because God wants to give, and you don't have because, what does James say? You don't ask. I find this scenario in ministry more often than not. It makes me convinced that there's essentially like two classes of people in a church. One class of people are those whom God has blessed with wealth and they have very generous hearts and they desire to give, but they don't know where the needs are. So they, they kind of like sit on their hands about it. And then there are people who have great needs, but they're embarrassed to ask. And so they suffer quietly. And what we see here is that in the early church, God closes that gap. Primarily because he's a good and giving God and he loves to provide through his people. And think about it. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, what are you expecting to happen? You open your eyes and then there's bread there? Did you see like an angelic DoorDash guy run away as you finished the prayer too early and you didn't want to be seen dropping your food off from heaven? No, give us this day our daily bread. God says, okay, how's he going to do it? Through the baker, through your parents, through the cafeteria lady, through the restaurant worker. God loves to provide through other people. And he especially loves to provide his own people through others of his own people. That's what we're seeing and acts here. Why? Because whether you know it or not, cheerful giving and cheerful reception is a form of worship to give and receive. It's a liturgy of gospel memory. It's a parable of reminding you that God gives and that we receive 
God gives life, we receive life. God gives his son, we receive his son. God sends his spirit, we receive his spirit. And when the wealthy give, they're reminded of God's giving his son, a sacrifice that's going to be accepted or rejected, adored or abused, let's be honest. Because sometimes if you have and you don't want to give, one of, the, one of the genuine concerns is, well, if I give, what if it'll be abused? Great question. It could, but that's not the thing that crossed the father's mind when he sent his son. And when the needy receive, they're reminded of God's provision for them that there is nothing we bring to the table of salvation except for this, empty hands. And it reminds them of their dependence on God and his goodness and his mercy to give. In both instances, in giving and receiving, what's happening is that pride is being obliterated. Because you will not give if you think it's yours and you don't need to. And you will not receive if you're too proud to admit your needs. So don't be afraid to ask when there's a need. And this is scary for some people, but don't be afraid to broadcast that you have the means to help. Now, maybe the person you ask is not gonna be able to help you. I guarantee you that's probably what's gonna happen 90% of the time. But what happens is if needs are made aware in our community, they start to float around, and so-and-so has this need, like, oh, I was actually at coffee with so-and-so the other day, and they said they have this thing, right? Practical example, I don't know, somebody, so-and-so, like, they are gonna miss the water bill payment. And I was on the phone with somebody the other day, and they're like, uh, God blessed me with like 300 bucks, and I just feel like I'm supposed to give it to the church. Like, let me make that connection. Giving, receiving, right? But that doesn't happen if you don't broadcast your needs and you don't broadcast your ability to, to fulfill needs. Does that make sense? Great place to do this, community groups. It's not like everybody should come up on the stage and be like, here are all of the needs I have. No, do it in the privacy with people that you trust in your community groups. In the end, I think the guiding principle here is simple. In the kingdom of God, not all need to be equal as far as wealth is concerned, but all do need to be cared for. Like in the kingdom of God, as far as wealth is concerned, not all need to be equal, but all do need to be cared for. That's the Christian way. That's not communism. That's not individualism. That is gospel-oriented charity that seeks to do good to everyone, Paul says it this way, especially, especially to those of the household of faith. So what's the result of a learning, living, liturgical, praying church in awe of God's wonder and moved in giving and receiving as a community? Verse 46 and 47. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The main point here is the glad and generous hearts. If you're into underlining or highlighting, that's, I think, the main point here. But there's two tangential points that capture our attention real quick, so we need to address those before we close on the glad and generous hearts. The, the first one is um, the fact that they, they kept going to the temple. Isn't that interesting? You think that after the day of Pentecost and everybody repented from their sin and was baptized, they'd stop going to the temple. Why? Well, the temples where there's dead religion and 
all that, that mode of worship is, is cold and rote and they have these rules and regulations and all this. Why, why does the church need to mess with that? You, you go back in time, guess where the early church is hanging out? At the temple. So interesting to me. What are we supposed to make of this habit? Well, first, I think we can glean uh, that, that the early church recognized that it was important as a community, not merely to gather in their homes, but to gather in mass at the temple in public. And what I think that means is the early church recognized that it's insufficient to just have community groups. We ought to gather corporately. Why? Because whether you realize it or not, right now, literally, as we're sitting in this room, there is a mystical connection that is occurring between us. The Holy Spirit is present in those who believe and is present with those who believe and our hearts and our minds are being knit together as we receive this meal of God's word, hearing about what God did with his people, desiring that he would do similar things with us. When we gather together publicly, what we are doing is we are reenacting God calling Israel out of Egypt and gathering together at the foot of Mount Sinai to reestablish his covenant with his people. That's not what God is doing right now. He's not reestablishing his covenant with us. It's permanent. But in the same way that, you know, like the ordinances should remind us what Christ has done, we should be reminded as we gather together, like God's people gathers. They've been doing this for millennia. And, and we should uh, enjoy the fact that we get to do that. I think another thing that, that happens when we gather together that's not often talked about, um, when you gather together as a people of God, effectively what you're making is a, a cosmic declaration of where you think your allegiance and your citizenship lies. Essentially, you're telling the world and you're declaring over hell, I don't belong to you. I may live here, but my embassy represents the kingdom of God. And that's a powerful thing, something I think we, we don't appreciate. Now, I'm not saying we as in Marcellus, like we generally speaking, Western Christians. If you go to like a developing world and you ask them why they gather, one of the primary regions is we gotta keep the demons at bay. We gotta remind them whose territory this is. Wild to hear that, absolutely wild. First time I went to a, a, a church service in a developing world, and they, they, they had these prayers to get like demons and bad spirits away from them. I'm like, what are they doing? And they're like, yeah, the demons gotta go away. Like, I, tell me a little bit about that. They're like, you don't do that in your churches? I'm like, no. Like, it, it's, it's like they get it, I think, more than we need. Um, this is... Uh, I think, so the public gathering, that's what we're learning here. They're, they're, they're coming together uh, at the temple. Gathering together is important. Gathering together is important. There's good reasons not to gather. Illness, like recuperation from surgery, travel, these types of things. But if you continue to not gather and find excuses and reasons why not to gather, then there will come a time of where you pass from a season of fellowship to a season of isolation from the body of Christ. And you forego the blessing of seeing the saints and hearing God's word and celebrating it together. This is uh, the way that the author of Hebrews said it. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some. Well, why not? So that we can, he continues, encourage one another and all the more you see the day is drawing near. So part of the reason you gather together is for encouragement. Uh, second, the fact that the early church continued to go to the temple indicates that even though they were starting a new form of worship, 
the one that magnifies Jesus, they kept some of their old forms of worship. They kept going to the temple. I mean, think about that for a second. They kept aspects of their Jewish identity, but with a new meaning. And they kept aspects of their Jewish worship, but with a new purpose. I'm just going to throw this one out there for community groups to discuss. What forms of worship most honor God? And why do you suppose the early church kept worshiping in the temple? I think one of the lessons we can draw from this is simple. So long as the worship you are engaging in is, according to Jesus, in spirit and in truth, and that it is biblically rooted, you can enjoy that form of worship and you have no right to judge other people's worship that doesn't look like yours. As long as it is in spirit and in truth and biblically based. I sandwiched that statement together, right? Because some Christians are drawn to high church liturgies, other churches are drawn to low church liturgies. Some Christians are drawn to vestment, incense, organs. Others are drawn to slacks and lights and guitars. What matters more, form or the content of worship? And answer is the content of worship. So, just a thought. The early church also, it says, had favor with all people. Even though they were being open about their faith, they were going to the temple, right? That's gonna stop. They're gonna be persecuted. But right now, they're not. They had favor with all people. Um, look, Favor with the world is never the goal of the church. Let me be very clear about that. That is not the purpose of the church, to seek or garner favor of the world. But enjoy it when it's here. I think we have a problem as Christians uh, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, where's the persecution? Like, maybe God's just giving the church a time out, a blessed season of Sabbath in anticipation for future persecution because it is not a matter of if that persecution comes, but when, that's what we're told in scripture. Um, drop the persecution complex. If your neighbors love you because you're a Christian, just enjoy it, <laughs> enjoy it. That's what they were doing. Because most of the book of Acts, their neighbors don't love them for being Christian. Third and finally, the early church had glad and generous hearts. And Luke here, I think, is playing with something that happened earlier. He's drawing our attention not only to Peter's sermon, but also to the cross. Here's why. Um, he said that after Peter's sermon, the, the people were cut to the heart, which means that hearts that are pierced by the gospel are hearts that become generous because Christ's pierced heart on the cross was the most generous heart of all. All of these things are gonna be wrapped up here. You want a heart that looks like Jesus's? It must be pierced by sin. We talked all about that last week. And replaced by God, as promised to us in Ezekiel. I'll put in you a new heart. And that new heart beats in gospel-driven thankfulness, in gospel-driven generosity, which expands the borders of the kingdom of God. Finally, verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number. Who added to their number? The Lord. Not the apostles, not the pastors, not the church, not programs, not conferences, not gimmicks, not your TikTok videos or your blog. The Lord adds to his church because it's his church, not ours. So what happens in a living, learning, liturgical, praying church in awe of God's wonder 
move to give and receive as a community that gathers and worships in glad and generous hearts, apparently it grows. And so as we go this week and we reflect on this passage personally and in our community groups, I pray that we would use this instructive description of the early church to have the Holy Spirit tell us where we can be encouraged as a church and individuals and where we need uh, exhortation, where we fall short. Does that sound good? Well, let's pray. Father, we again thank you for uh, capturing this moment in the life of your church, which we are all inheritors, recipients, and members of. We thank you for the dedication, the attachment of the early church had to your word, to fellowship. Father, we thank you that they were attached to giving and receiving. That in awe and wonder, with the generosity of their hearts, they were creating, by the power of your Holy Spirit, something new. A new community people that you call your own. Father, I pray that we may look at this description of the early church and draw out any principles that are relevant and applicable to us as the local expression of your body here in Mobile, Alabama today. Father, reveal those things to us. Let us speak of them in our fellowship this week and let us strive for them, not because we think it's going to garner your attention or love, but because of you have given us your love and attention already and desire for us to experience the blessing of living in this kind of community as described in Acts chapter two. Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, as we continue in worship, would you...